James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. The power, our title this morning, the power and the problem of the tongue. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. In verse 1 of chapter 3, James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now James begins chapter 3, with a warning, a warning for those who desire to teach. Actually, it's a reminder, one, for those who do teach. And I think in part, James is reminding himself of these truths. You know, I I know that Randy has said this. I I have probably said this, that when we teach and when we preach, we're we're preaching to ourselves and we're, we're teaching to ourselves and and we need to be reminded of these things as, as much as you need to be reminded of these things. I think the same was, was true for the apostles. I think that James was reminding himself of, of these truths as he was uh, um, proclaiming them to uh, the church as well. Now, again, he's reminding himself that there will be a stricter, uh, that, sorry, he's reminding himself that there will be stricter judgment for those who teach, but is also a reminder for those who desire to teach. Now, this is not so much uh, pastoral instruction, if you will, for those who desire to or are called to, to be pastors, okay? Um, it's instruction 
to those primarily who out of sinful pride desire the spotlight that teaching could potentially place upon them. So, yes, it is a reminder to those who do teach, those who are called to teach, those who are called to pastor, but it's also a warning to those who desire to teach really out of sinful and selfish motives. That is, they want the spotlight. They want to be the center of attention. They want to be heard. They not only want people to hear them, but they want to influence people with what they say. Uh, A fellow that I work with who goes to a a church locally often complains, um, and and I think rightfully so, maybe complains not the best word, but has concerns where, where uh, he goes to church because it seems that he said everyone wants to be a teacher and a pastor. Everyone wants to shepherd, but it seems like nobody actually wants to be a sheep, right? Everyone wants to have control. And he talks about this constant uh, uh, struggle in his church where everyone wants the spotlight, but nobody actually wants to, to, to be taught. This was the case in the first century church that in part James was addressing. There was an openness in the church whereby, you know, people were allowed to speak and or teach openly. And so James is really warning against that. He says again, knowing, right, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I know when I prepare to preach and to teach, and, and, and I know Randy does the same, we do so with much fear and trembling, knowing that God will judge us more strictly. Turn with me to First Timothy 1, 3 through 7. Paul is addressing Timothy here, and I'll read in just a moment. And he's dealing with false teachers in the church, okay? Um, but I think potentially this is where this openness and this is where just allowing anyone to teach indiscriminately, okay, anyone to speak indiscriminately, this is where it can lead. And in fact, this is where in part it led to um, in, in the first century church that Paul was addressing Timothy about. Verse 3 of chapter 1. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure, pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So James is issuing this warning, and it's very important that he issues this warning. And it is not to be taken 
lightly okay, by anyone, regardless of position. If, if you are called to, to teach, and this would be men or women. I mean, if you are a woman and you are called to teach other women, which would be the appropriate role of a woman teaching, right? This, this is applicable to you. If you are a man and you are called to teach, right? Uh, uh, not even from a pastoral perspective, but called to teach in the church, children, other adults, young adults, whomever, right? This is applicable to you. If you are a man and you are called to be a pastor teacher, again, this warning is to you. In fact, this warning is to all believers because we all have that propensity, that desire to want to be heard, to have the spotlight, to have power of influence over others ultimately by what we say. So this warning that James gives is ultimately um, to all of us. And he does it for the purity of the church, right? Guarding against what Paul is dealing with Timothy about, right? Uh, ultimately, uh, uh, false teachings and false doctrines, a different gospel being introduced into the church. Into the church. He's, he's, he's warning against that. He's protecting the church against that, as well as he's protecting individual believers. Not just those who would hear, but even those who would, who would speak and who would do so um, out of sin. So he's, he's protecting hearers from a false teacher up here. But he's also protecting the genuine believer from that sin who would, who would speak maybe falsely or sinfully. Verse 2, he says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. I love what James does here in verse 2. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Don't, I don't think, as we're turning there, I don't think what he's doing is explicit, okay? It, it's, it's not, you know, maybe he was intentionally aware of it, maybe he wasn't, but nonetheless, he's doing it, and I think it's an absolute incredible example of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. This is Jesus speaking here, and he says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. James, in this chapter, in part, is in the process of confronting sin. He's dealing with sin in the church, but before he deals with the sin in the church, he's dealing with the sin in his own life first. And I think he's just modeling this naturally, again, because of the work that Christ has done and is doing in and through his life, right? And we see a great example of that here in James chapter 3. Again, it isn't the point of this text, but nonetheless, we see this modeled by James in this chapter, and so we have to give it attention. You see, the truth is, and we see it again in Matthew 7, we see it modeled by James, is that if we, if you, are going to 
confront a brother or a sister who has unrepentant sin in their life, you better make sure first that you don't have unrepentant sin in your life. And your desire to confront them and your attitude while confronting that sin is going to be out of humility, not out of a self-righteous attitude. And we see that for James says, says, for we all stumble in many ways, self-included. My stumble, he means sin. He's about to confront this sin, and he says, listen, I want you to understand that we all sin. That I sin, James is saying, and I struggle with sin, and God is convicting me, has been convicting me over sin, has brought me to repentance, is bringing me to repentance. We understand this is an ongoing process in our lives, right? I'm dealing with it, and you're dealing with it. Every believer struggles with it, right? Now, we understand that some sins are going to be more obvious than others, right? And by obvious, I don't mean just in our lives, but I mean like outwardly obvious, Some of us might be struggling with sin that is obvious to those around us, right? Maybe more obvious to those around us than to even ourselves, right? Others of us, maybe now, maybe periods, different periods in our lives, are going to be struggling with sin that is obvious to no one else except us and to God, right? Some sins you might be in the process of being convicted over, you are repenting over, have repented over, still a struggle, still dealing with. Others, you might be fighting that conviction of the Holy Spirit, right? But James isn't saying this, right? Oh, we all sin, okay? We all stumble in many ways. He isn't saying this to justify sin. He isn't saying this to make you feel better about sin. I once heard a sermon preached by a pastor at a, at a Southern Baptist church. He was addressing the, the issue of homosexuality. Specifically, he was addressing homosexuals in that sermon over that issue. And he made a statement, basically, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all the same. It's okay. Right? In fact, never confronted the sin, never called it out for for what it was. I mean, yeah, he said it was sin, but hey, we're all sinners. God loves sinners, so it's okay. That's not what James is doing here. Paul in Romans chapter 6, right? If you recall 1 through 2, he says, what then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound or increase? And he says, may it never be. How can we who have died to sin still live in it. See, James, in verse 2 here, is reminding himself, reminding us that we all struggle with sin, and that when we confront sin, which is about, which is what he's about to do, in fact, I mean, he's been doing it all throughout this letter, right? When we confront sin, we have to do so with grace and with mercy, out of the desire to see God glorified, to see those who are in the repentant, uh, who are living in the unrepentant sin, 
to see them brought to repentance, to see them restored, to see their relationship with Christ and with the Father and with the Holy Spirit grow even stronger. That's what he's doing in this verse. He's reminding us of that. Again, I think it's more than appropriate for James to do this here. This isn't the point of the text, right? He isn't giving us a lesson on how we confront sin explicitly, but again, implicitly, he's he's modeling that to us, right? He's modeling Matthew chapter 7. So write a little note in your Bible. You can even link the two, right? James models Matthew chapter 7 and how we confront sin and others right here in this text. He says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, right? If anyone doesn't sin with the words that come out of his mouth, right? Not just what is said, right? But how it's said. And we we all know that, right? Sometimes we can say things that are relatively benign. The actual words themselves were not sinful, but how we said what we said might have been sinful. Maybe the words were. Maybe how we said it was. Again, if anyone does not sin in what he says, he is a perfect man. Now, first, understand this is a characterization of one's life. He's not saying that you'll reach a point or there are believers who never sin in what they say or how they say what they say, right? We're talking about a characterization of a person's life. This person, right, their life is characterized by this, okay? And by perfect man, he's not talking about sinless perfection, right? We understand that we, for those of us who are believers, right, positionally we have been sanctified, right, before God, through Christ, right? We are being sanctified, right? That is, we are growing in holiness, should be more and more every day, right? Hating our sin more and more, becoming like Christ more and more. And then someday, we will be sanctified completely, totally, in all aspects, right? Sinless, right? That will happen when he calls us home or he comes to get us, okay? My perfect man is not talking about that final sanctification here, right? He's talking about spiritual maturity. He's saying that the one who does not or is not characterized by sinning with his mouth, right? This person is spiritually mature and maturing because we also understand that just like sanctification which is a process of spiritual maturity right is a process maturing none of us have arrived it says if anyone does not stumble in what he says he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well See, how one controls his tongue is a reflection of spiritual maturity as a demonstration of self-control. This is faith that works, isn't it? I mean, we were just talking about that last week, actually the last several sermons in chapter 2, right? I mean, this is what the whole letter is about, you know, faith that works, putting faith into practice, having external evidence of that internal change. And in part, that's what he's addressing here. This, this person, the one who is able to control what comes out of his, his mouth, right? That person is demonstrating 
his faith by his works. Turn with me to Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This this person, this believer, the one with self-control who is able to regulate, if you will, what comes out of his mouth, right? This person is not doing so in their own strength. There is nothing that that person in and of themselves is, uh, is, is able to boast about. For this self-control that they are exhibiting, this faith that they are exhibiting, right, it is what? It is a fruit of the Spirit. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 5a. It says, now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great here, James gives us two analogies of the tongue and its ability to control. And in the first, he relates it to a bit. It's a simple, small piece of metal that you put into a horse's mouth. And for those, I know some of you have horses, have ridden horses, have had horses, right? You understand that. You understand how you are able to control this massive beast with this, this small piece of metal. And in the next analogy, he talks about a ship and how a very small rudder is able to control this, this massive ship. Now, I've never really spent any time uh, on, on a ship or ever really driven or piloted a ship, per se, not, not in the water, but, but I do understand as a pilot flying airplanes what he's talking about. You have this massive airplane with these big, powerful engines. And for me, Lance can understand this, to fly an airplane from point A to point B, it actually takes very small controls to do that. Very small movements. And yet we're able to move this, 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 this heavy, powerful piece of metal through the sky with just very, very little control. Right? James says that's, that's the tongue. Just as the bit controls this beast, and just as this rudder controls this massive ship, so the tongue, small part of the body, right, in fact has that same control. It is powerful. He says it boasts of great things. 
You see, with the tongue, I know this is something we all can relate with, right? With the tongue, man, we direct our lives. We can direct the lives of others with our words. We can do so for good. We can use our tongue to edify others. We can use our tongue for the good of others. We can also use our tongue to harm others, to control in a negative way. He says the tongue boasts of great things. This isn't good things James is referring to here. Right? Again, he's confronting sin in this passage. Right? And he says the tongue, powerful, the ability to control for good or for bad, it boasts of great things, not godly things, right? but evil things, vain things. It boasts of man. Our accomplishments, our abilities, not only does the tongue have the power to control, again, that could be good, that could be bad, but it also has the power to consume or to destroy. Chapter 3 of James, verses 5b through 6. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The illustration of a destructive fire, I I think in today's drought climate, we can all understand that, how it would take one spark to destroy probably not only your pasture, your yard, but the entire county. We've seen forest fires in California that have absolutely devastated, you know, millions of dollars worth of real estate and property and land. They find out that, oh, it was a, a cigarette. Someone flicked a cigarette out and it destroyed millions of dollars worth of stuff. Hundreds of thousands of acres. The tongue is like this, James says. We all understand that. We all understand fire and its destructive potential. And James says that is the tongue. That is the words that proceed from our mouth have that same capability. We understand that words can cause wars. I mean, literally cause wars. Consider history. Words can cause wars. They can literally wreck cities. They can result in lost lives. Off with their head, right? Absolutely. Words can, this might get more personal for some of us, words can break hearts. With our words, we can ruin reputations. We can wreck relationships. Words can destroy. They can destroy physically, right? We have that ability to control with our mouth. 
that can result in literal physical destruction of something as we direct others. But more often than not, we destroy others emotionally with our words. He says the tongue is a fire, right? The very world of iniquity. And the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. I've summarized that verse into a sentence. And this is what he essentially is saying with that verse because it seems like there's a lot going on there. And this is what he's saying. The tongue, right, our words, the tongue is a perpetual source of self-infected wickedness that seeks to destroy. So James, understand this, is quite literally addressing sin in the church. In the first century church, he's seeing this sin, right? People harming one another with their words. Maybe by proclaiming false doctrine that harms. Maybe through gossip. Maybe slander. Just spiteful, malicious, hateful words towards other people, about other people. He's not only confronting it to the first century church, he's also confronting it for us. Really, all generations of believers, past, present, and future. And he's not addressing what just happens in fellowship. Randy and I have, have, have been, I think, both confronted by this uh, uh, over the past week, over the past uh, uh, two weeks. I have been, at least, right? How, how does this look in my life, right? Because, you know, in fellowship here, us, right? I mean, I don't see, you know, malicious talk. I mean, we come in here and we praise God and we, we fellowship and we have a great time. And I don't see this person talking bad about that person, Right? I don't see this person over here trying to, to, to rob the spotlight and, and, and proclaim false doctrine, right? I don't see this person using coarse speech that's harmful in this regards. So we're all good, right? I mean, we don't, we don't struggle with this. I mean, that was, I think that was my first reaction when I read this text was, well, that's great. I don't struggle with this. I mean, my tongue isn't a fire. I mean, I don't, I don't go out and I don't gossip and, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't do these things, you know? Um, so, so we're okay, right? What about, what about laughing at an inappropriate joke told about the president? I think that qualifies here. I think, I think James, I think he's addressing that sin. What about saying, you know, I can't believe that person did that. You know, recently... The, uh, and the news, and I didn't follow it, and I don't want to get into it, but the whole Casey Anthony trial, right? I can't believe that woman was like that with her child. That's gossip. That's, that's gossip. Because, because you, were, you were a better parent because you're a better person than she ever could have been, right? James is addressing that sin here, which is really self-righteousness that spews out of our mouth as we think we're better than them. And we, we, we think we're better than them because we're pointing out their sin and not even addressing our own. Here's one that I struggle with. Absolutely con, con, confronted about this week and, and 
um, you know, God has been dealing with me over. Uh, and it has to do with a fellow that I work with. I like him. I get along great with him. He's a good guy, has a propensity to, to land the airplane kind of hard. And so I might come in and I might land and might say to the co-pilot, well, hey, at least I didn't bob it in. His name isn't Bob, but assuming it was Bob, I'd make that statement. Hey, at least I didn't bob it in, right? That's sin. And that's the sin that, that James is addressing here because it's hateful, it's harmful, it's gossip, it's malicious, it's evil. I think sometimes as as a church and as individuals who absolutely love the doctrines of grace and want to proclaim these doctrines, I think that we sin. I know I struggle with this one as well, and I know there are others here that do. We sin in our theological arrogance of these doctrines and how we treat others who don't hold to these doctrines. Can, you know, I mean, I know he's a four-point I mean, he's a four point Calvinist. That's good, but what's his problem? Why can't he see that Christ, you know, didn't die for literally every person? I mean, the atonement's not, not, not you know, unlimited. I mean, what's his deal? I just can't believe that man. And, he, and, he's, and he's a pastor? How can he be a pastor if he doesn't believe in limited atonement? James is addressing that here, and he's addressing us in that here. And I've really struggled with that as I've examined uh, other men who even hold themselves out to be pastors. And, and maybe, I, maybe they aren't pastors. Maybe these men are truly false teachers. There's two that I can think of. I won't name them, right? I believe that they are believers. Absolutely. Believe that they're believers. Believe they have the gospel right. But in how they handle their so-called ministry, I don't believe the men are qualified to be pastors. And that's okay to have that belief. And that's okay to warn others about that, to say, you know, be cautious, right? But I've been loose with my words. I've been loose with my tongue and how I've addressed those men and what I've thought about those men. Practically speaking, these are the sins that, that James is addressing in my life and I think our lives. And there's not a lot of fighting in the church. I don't see a lot of gossip here. There might be some. I, mean, I don't know your heart. I don't see your heart. You do. You might walk out these doors after just saying, holy, holy, holy. And as soon as you walk out the door, say, I can't believe she wore that. Can you believe she, she, she talked to her kids that way? That's just horrible. When I, when I had my kids, I never acted that way. We might do that. I don't know. I don't see it. I don't hear it. And, you know, even if we don't say it, it could still be in our hearts. And if it's in our hearts, it's just as bad. It's just as sinful. Verses 7 through 12, James reveals to us the problem or the problems of the tongue. It says, For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. It's reckless, it's wild, it's dangerous. It has the ability to control, it has the ability to destroy. And man can tame all sorts of beasts, has tamed all sorts of beasts 
and yet we are incapable of taming our own tongues, let alone the tongues of someone else. See, King David intimately understood the corruption behind the tongue. Psalm 64. Hear my voice, O God, and my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. The talk of lying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, we are ready with a well-conceived plot. For the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God will shoot at them with an arrow, and suddenly they will be wounded. So they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake the head, then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God and will consider what he has done. And the righteous man will be glad in the Lord and will take refuge in him, and the upright in heart will glory. Not only was David intimately acquainted with the dangers and the corruption and the destruction and the control that can come from the tongue, he understood that He understood that man, just as James proclaims, is ultimately incapable of taming the tongue, but there's one who is capable of taming the tongue. Turn over to Psalm 141. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands is the evening offering. In verse 3, he says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. See, our only rescue for our tongue, the only one who is capable of controlling our tongue, right? It's not us, just at the beginning, the man who has self-control, right? Which was a gift, a fruit of the Spirit. The only one capable of taming the tongue is, is God. And he did it through Christ. If you are a believer, he did it through Christ. It's only available through Christ. Colossians 
verses 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. You see, Jesus is our only rescue, our only hope, our only help from sin. And the evil which pours out of our mouth is sin. And we have absolutely no power over sin, over evil. Jesus does. So it's only in him and it's only through him, even as a Christian, right? It's not like we get saved and then we do it all on our own, right? I was a sinner, right? Struggled with these sins. God saved me through the work of Christ. And now on my own, I can do it. I can now on my own, because he saved me, control my tongue. I can now on my own turn from this sin. I can now on my own, right, just not sin. No. Even as Christians, we need him continuously and constantly to do this work in us and through us. John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine. This is Jesus speaking here, right? He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for, here it is, and, and I believe it, and I believe this in all aspects of the believer's life when it comes to living righteously, if you will, that is being obedient to his commands, not that we are righteous, but that we are called to live obediently. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And I believe it. God commands us in his word to abstain from this. God commands us in his word to do this. He commands us in his word to go ye therefore, right? We can't do any of that as believers apart from Christ's continual work in our lives. We need him. We can't tame the tongue, right? We can't keep our words in check. We can't keep our attitude in check. We can't keep our heart in check apart from him. We can't do it, but he can. Verse 9. With it, again, speaking of the tongue. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. We praise God. And then we curse. By cursing, I don't think James... No, I know. Like I said, I don't think. I know James doesn't have in mind. One, again, he's not talking about swearing, right? And by cursing here, like cursing men, I don't even think he's necessarily, I mean, he could be, right? But he's not necessarily addressing maybe like some type of imprecatory prayer or something against another man, like coming into church and singing God's praises, right? Blessing God, right? Praising God. And then I walk out and I say, you know, I don't like that person. I hope something bad happens to them right? I mean, yes, cursing, right? That person. I mean, he is in part addressing that. But again, how do we see that in our lives played out? How is that, how is that viewed for me, right? Words of wrath and anger 
Maybe, for example, frustration towards another person. Maybe another believer. I've been frustrated at other believers. I've been frustrated at times uh, with other believers in this body. And in my heart, and maybe with my mouth, maybe not to others, I've thought things, and I've said things that were wrathful, if you will, about that person. And I was thinking about that very act this morning, right? Especially towards another believer, right? For the believer, right, there is no curse, right? I mean, for the believer, right, Christ has become our curse, right? For the believer, there is no wrath from God, is there? If you are saved, right, God's wrath for you has been satisfied completely. And then with my words, either to you or about you, regardless of whether or not anyone's in my presence when I say them or when I think them, then if my words towards you or about you are wrathful, if that's a word, or display some types of wrath or anger towards you, I'm in fact doing to you or towards you or about you what God did for you in his son. So your wrath has been, or his wrath for you is satisfied through Christ. And then if I show you wrath, I'm in fact doing what? Trying to usurp the authority of God and be a God unto myself by showing you wrath. Even if I do it in your presence or not, it doesn't matter. Even if it doesn't come out of my mouth, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. So he says with our tongues, we curse, we, we bless God, and then we curse men. We curse men who are made in the image of God. We might curse other believers who actually have had God's wrath satisfied for them. And here you're trying to display wrath towards them. And for the unbeliever, assuming the unbeliever never will be saved, that person will die in their sins, right? God will be the one who pours out wrath upon them. Not, not me. It's not my place. With it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse men who have, made, who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. He's exposing, James is exposing here in part the sin of hypocrisy because that's what it is when we do that. When we bless and then we curse. Think back to James chapter 2 with showing partiality, right? Ultimately, what did we say that was? If you recall, it was what? It was a form of blasphemy, wasn't it? It was a form of blasphemy because in one voice, they were proclaiming God. They were proclaiming Christ. And then in their actions, they were denying him. That's blasphemy. It's not just using God's name as a cuss word, which is blasphemy. But when we proclaim him with our lips, when we deny him with our actions, that's also blasphemy. When we bless him with our lips and we curse others with our lips, it's also a form of blasphemy. This is the sin 
that James is exposing in this chapter. And of course he says, my brethren, he's talking to us, he's talking to believers. My brethren, sin, that must stop. This thing's not ought to be. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Now I suspect some of you have been thinking along these lines. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 through 37. It says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. It says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? Pay attention to this, because this is ultimately what James is addressing here, right? He is addressing specific sin in the church, right? Hypocrisy, blasphemy, sins with our mouth. But, it, but he's addressing something deeper. It's going to something deeper. He says, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So in part, in this chapter, up to this point, what James has done, which is common Jewish literary device, is he's personified a part of the body. He's personified the tongue, right? Well, the tongue itself doesn't sin, does it? I mean, the actual tongue in my mouth doesn't sin, right? And my tongue itself, right, physically, in and of itself, isn't evil, right? It's not the tongue It's what? It's what's behind the tongue. And it's the heart which is behind the tongue. And so this entire time, ultimately, James has been addressing the heart of man. The tongue reflects the heart. So in addressing the tongue, he's addressing the heart of man. I think we could go back there. We're not going to do it, but it might be something you want to consider this week. Go back and look at this text. And where it talks about tongue, put in the heart of man. Just, just substitute the heart of man. Tongue not only reveals corruption, but it ultimately reflects condition. Verse 11 and 12. He says, Does a fountain sent out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, second, sorry. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. He gives these ridiculous illustrations, right? And these things can't be so. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Well, duh. No, it can't. Right? Obvious answer. Can a fig tree produce olives? That's ridiculous. No. What about a vine? Can a vine produce grapes? Absolutely not. 
then why can a Christian, why can a believer, why can you, why, why can I, and why can we spew evil out of our mouths? Once again, James is forcing us, I hope he's forcing you, I pray he's forcing you, to examine ourselves, to examine your self, to examine the words that come out of your mouth. Because the words that come out of your mouth are a reflection of your heart. Even simple statements like, glad I didn't bob that landing in. It's a reflection of my heart. It's a reflection of pride. It's a reflection of self-righteousness. Why? Why is that in my heart? Why is that in your heart? Is it because you've never repented and trusted in Christ? Maybe you have, and if you have, you still need to repent over that. Is it in my heart because of what I'm putting in my heart? Because what I'm feeding on, right? Because what we put in going to come out so it's a reflection of what's in here but I'm putting in here what's in here examine yourself once again James exposes sin at the surface it was just loose lips right we're just saying stuff that we shouldn't be saying he narrows it down says that reflects the condition of your heart He says, examine yourself. Can a fig tree bear olives or whatever? So yeah, can a fig tree bear olives? Or a vine produce figs? Can a Christian produce evil and wickedness? We know that we can. And we know that when we do, we need to repent. Let's pray. Father, I've been challenged this week by your word. Um, God, I've, I've been more than challenged, Father. I've been convicted by it, Lord. Um, God, I know that you this week have been dealing with me and with my, my sin through James. Um, God, I, I praise you and I thank you for that conviction. And I praise you and I thank you, Father, for the repentance that you've been granted. God, but I desire to be kept from that, Lord. I don't, I don't want to fall back into that, Father. That's my desire for me, God, but that's my desire for, for those in this church, Lord. God, I pray that you would convict us in this way, Lord. Convict us by what comes out of our mouth, God, because it is a reflection of what's in our heart, Lord. As you convict us, Father, I pray that you would continue to grant us repentance, Father. And Lord, I pray that you would keep us, Lord, from these sins. Father, not not just for our sake or for the sake of those that we would hurt with our words, God. And yes, for that, Lord, but first, for your glory, Father, I pray that you would keep us from this. Father, thank you for, for speaking to us today through your word. 
I pray, God, that you would continue to speak to us through your word as, as we even go out from here through this text and even as we continue to study on our own this week, Father. Speak to us through your word. Change us. Continue to conform us to the image of your Son for his glory and for his praise.